My advice is don't give up. There's always another way. And there's so many times when you will feel beat down as a medical student, as a resident, even as an attending. There's days when I just think, can I cure anything today? Um, because patients just aren't getting better. But don't give up because you'll have other days where you learn a whole bunch or you'll do a procedure and it'll go right. And it'll, you know, and the patient will come back and say, I'm so much better. And and sometimes the opposite happens where you think, I don't even know if this is going to help this person, but we're going to give it a try because we don't have other options. And it works really well. So keep going. Welcome everyone to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies told by doctors working in primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tanning. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. Ross Tanik here reporting from Truth Be Told Studios. A couple of days after recording this amazing interview with sports medicine specialist, Dr. Kathy Vidlock. We sat down for this interview around noon in her cozy office at her private practice in Parker, Colorado. After a morning of seeing patients and performing ultrasound techniques, it was really fun. It was uh, a delightful day. She was a fantastic guest because she loves what she does and is great at discussing it in a very digestible way. So big thanks to her for accommodating me and my recording equipment and, of course, my salvo of interview questions. Dr. Vidlock had a unique pathway to sports medicine. She went to medical school at the University of Minnesota, Residency in family medicine, very close to where I grew up outside of Minneapolis at North Memorial Medical Center. Then she practiced family medicine for 10 years prior to going back and doing a sports medicine fellowship at the University of Iowa. We talk about being an inpatient and outpatient family doctor, a team physician, being in non surgical orthopedics a medical director for sporting events, and having her own private practice sports medicine clinic. She's really had quite the career. We discuss her fellowship training, her use of musculoskeletal ultrasound, alternative therapies for MSK injuries, her life teaching family medicine residents, and many more aspects of her practice. She talks about an organization that she's involved with called Spring Forward for Girls, which is a program committed to engaging female high school athletes in their long-term well-being through nutrition and body confidence. It really sounds like a great endeavor to get involved with. And you can find them on Instagram at spring underscore forward underscore girls for, for more information. Quick digression from me, I apologize if the sound quality isn't quite up to my vigorous standards. There was some very mild buzzing going on at times that I realized after the fact, but it's really not distracting, and I think you can ignore it pretty well. Well, of course you can, and you're going to listen to the show anyway, because there's a lot of great info in there. So I hope you enjoy. So let's get started. Runners, take your marks. Get set, go listen to my conversation with sports med specialist, Dr. Kathy Vidlock. So I grew up in Minnesota near the Twin Cities, just south of the Twin Cities, and as a child, I really was interested in what doctors did and healthcare, and I loved chemistry and biology in high school. I was also a swimmer, and I loved health class, which is probably unusual. I don't think kids really enjoy health class all that much. Mm -hmm. But I loved being athletic, and when I went to college, I really enjoyed chemistry, and I thought I would probably be a chemist. So I worked in an organic chemistry lab and did some research and then I decided that I liked being with people more than just being in a lab all day. 
So I took the MCAT and went to medical school. And when I got to medical school, I was not sure what I wanted to do. I went through my third year rotations and when I did dermatology, I wanted to be a dermatologist. When I did neurology, I wanted to be a neurologist. And I loved sports medicine, but I wasn't sure what I would do. Um, So I ended up choosing family medicine because it has a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, it seems like not an uncommon story that uh, somebody is into the nerdy sciences, but, you know, finds that they like uh, the human interaction side of medicine even more than the the kind of research side of medicine. That was uh, maybe what you were thinking originally. Right. Um, and so you chose family medicine after being um, a D1 athlete. You were kind of interested. I was a D3 athlete. Oh, I'm sorry. D3. Mm-hmm. Um where uh, was that at the University of Minnesota? No, I spent my first year of college at um, a University of Wisconsin school and swam there. Oh, uh, okay. Sorry, I, I have the story. So wrong. I only swam for one year, and um, it was it was a great year. I learned a lot. I improved a lot on my swimming. Um, I ended up being all American for D three and oh, thought about sweet. swimming when I transferred to the University of Minnesota, but I wouldn't. You know, it was a much harder team to swim for. So Got I did it. not swim when I transferred. Okay. Um, but just being an athlete and being interested in that, you were was that part of the interest in sports medicine? Definitely part of the interest in sports medicine. When I was in college, I also picked up running. Mm-hmm. And um, I really enjoyed what the physiology of what happened to athletes. Um, in fact, in medical school, our second year, one of our professors does a lecture on the physiology of what happens when you run a marathon. And mm-hmm. I thought that was, lecture was one of the most fascinating aspects of my whole medical school career, ironically. Yeah, that's really cool. So, um, I, yeah, I did sports rotations my third and fourth year and really enjoyed them. Awesome. And so you said you picked family medicine because it was a little bit of everything. And it also happens to be a really good path into sports med. That was my thought at the time. I did not know if I would do a fellowship or not mm-hmm. at that point. Um. Yeah, so I know um, I'm kind of interested in like why family medicine is such a good pathway into sports medicine fellowship or just sports medicine as a career or uh, an interest within your practice. What about family medicine makes it a better setup than, say, internal medicine or even pediatrics or other ways or other pathways to get to sports med? Yeah, I think it defi- kind of depends on what your end goal is. I practice primary care sports medicine, which is, I, I see a lot of orthopedic type injuries, but I don't do any surgeries. I do ultrasound guided procedures, but the other aspect that I do is medical problems of athletes. And being a family physician, I have training in neurology, in psychology, in you know respiratory, I can treat asthma, I can treat depression in athletes, all of these things. I felt like family medicine was a nice, well-rounded way to learn about all those aspects and then apply them to athletes as well. Mm-hmm. I did not do a fellowship right after my residency. I actually practiced full-scope family medicine for 10 years before I went back and did a fellowship. Yeah, I was aware of that with you. Um, that seems like a rare thing to do. Is that is that pretty wild? It, it is definitely a different way to do it. And I had to step back into the position of being a, more of a learner or a student to go back and do a fellowship. But it was an amazing year. I was blessed to have a fellowship program director who sat down with me and said, you know, you really know what you want. You want to learn ultrasound. You've practiced. You have this path that you want to follow for your future practice. And so he really let me tailor my fellowship in some ways to get more of the ultrasound um, for my future. That's that's really cool. And I want to talk about tailoring the fellowship in, in a moment. First, I kind of want to talk about tailoring your residency experience to uh, set up your future career. I know yours wasn't a straight path going right mm-hmm. into fellowship, but different people have different residency experiences. We were kind of talking about this right before we heated up the mics. Um, we were talking about it totally depends on which residency program that you're at. 
yeah. um, in terms of how much you can actually have a say in what electives you take and how you can set yourself up for applying for it, fellowship. It completely depends. And my residency was quite some time ago. I'm 50. So it's been a while since I did a residency. And truth be told, I spent a lot of time doing OB and well child checks during my residency and not not very much time doing sports medicine because the residency I was at was very strong in those areas. Um, the residencies, I also work at a residency program now and am faculty there teaching sports and wilderness medicine. And our residency program has six or seven different tracks that you can follow. Um, and you can really tailor your experience to if you want more OB, if you want OMM, sports medicine, wilderness medicine, point of care ultrasound, um, hospitalist type track, you can tailor that a lot and really help with your future practice. Yeah. Um, so you're at the Health One residency here in uh, right outside Denver. Um, and when you say someone can tailor their experience like that in their first couple of years of residency, can they ask for more patients of a certain, um, you know, uh, chief complaint or. Yeah. There's or, a couple of different of ways you can yeah. kind of tailor your experience. I mean, there's certain things you, you can't walk in and say, I don't want to see any OB or something, you know, you're going to get some of everything. So there are certain rotations that are required and we also want people to have a wide variety of their experience but one way you can tailor it is that you get a fair amount of elective experience within our rotation if you join one of the tracks you will also get some outside experience some team physician experience or race experience for example in the sports medicine rotation uh, the other thing that you can do is simply talk to the front desk or the clinic and and say these are my interests this is what i would like to see and then our clinic tries to help get you the sorts of patients that'll be beneficial for your future. And one of the ways residents really do that is with procedures too. If they know that say they want to go to a small town and they want to be able to do vasectomies or other procedures in that town, then we really try to get them those procedures as a resident. So they feel comfortable with that once they graduate. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really cool. And I know you've talked about the ways in which people can kind of set themselves up for these competitive fellowships you know i'm assuming it's more competitive now than it ever has been to get into a fellowship and especially sports med seems to be a popular one um is is having a background in doing procedures and that you have documented your hours and your number of procedures is that super huge in in terms of landing a fellowship you know, I can only speak to the sports medicine fellowships, right. not the others sure. within family medicine. Um, but sports medicine is a highly competitive fellowship. The last time I looked, about a third of the people did not match. And I, I suspect that's still the same now. So as many things that you can do to make yourself competitive are really helpful. The American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, or AMSSM, actually has a, a great uh, page on this on their website that talks about the pathway to a fellowship and what you can do to make yourself successful. Um, having team physician experience is one of the best things that you can do. And we try to get that for our residents starting day one. They are team physician for a local high school that we follow. But there are other things that you can do too. You can work with local races. You can work on ultrasound skills, um, work on exam skills, so anything that you can do to help your sports medicine learning before you apply for yourself is really beneficial. Mm -hmm. Does that also apply to pre-residency, whether it be medical school or even before? Are those experiences relevant to somebody selecting applicants for fellowship? Or is it mostly just the residency experience? I think they look at the residency the most. However, having good board scores, having, if you show leadership, if you have learned some of those skills before, and you know, if you come in learning, or excuse me, if you come in knowing some ultrasound before you start your residency and you keep building on that, you're going to have a great base going into a fellowship. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the other pathways that people take? Can you go through ortho, uh, orthopedics? or there's pediatrics, is that a pathway that people go through? For a sports medicine fellowship, there 
the orthopedic path, there is an orthopedic sports medicine fellowship, but that's more surgical. So for a primary care sports medicine fellowship, you can do family medicine, emergency medicine, internal medicine, PEDS, um, PM&R. And if you, there's a list of fellowships again on the AMSSM website. And if you look through that, um, you can look at the programs and some of them will tell you, you know, we take family medicine and peds, but not the other specialties or, or whatever combination that they take. Mm-hmm. And so it depends on the program, what your background is. Most of them take family medicine, internal medicine and peds, but some of the other specialties, it, it depends on the situation. Yeah. Um, so you were, you, you talked about doing a lot of OB and a lot of well child checks that was in your residency. Yes. And then you graduated residency and started a full scope family medicine practice, uh, mostly primary care. Is that right? That's and, correct. Yeah. And it's, I'm old enough that when I did not do any OB once I was done with residency, but I did see patients in the ICU. I did vent management. We did full scope in, in that respect. We did not have hospitalists or I did not have a hospitalist available until about three months before I went to do my fellowship. So I spent the first nine and a half years of my practice doing inpatient and outpatient family medicine. Yeah. Wow. What was the, what was the split on your time? Um, and yeah, how did like a week or a month break down for you in that way? So it depended on which practice I was with, but typically I would round on my own patients if I had somebody in the hospital or we had usually had somebody rounding that day if you could not make it to the hospital, and then you were on call for admits um, once every other week or so, and then once every seven, eight weekends. Mm-hmm. You're saying a day per that amount of time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so when you were doing your um, family practice before sports medicine, um, I'm assuming you were treating a lot of chronic disease, Yes. Um, and kind of just being a, a primary care provider for a lot of people, but also treating sports injuries as they came to you. Yeah. My partners knew that I had an interest in sports medicine and our front desk knew that. And so I tended to get a lot of the sports medicine cases well before I did my fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just thinking, you know, this might be a, a little bit of a deep question and not a nuts and bolts question, but, you know, how does the world of sports medicine interact with the world of treating chronic disease? Because that's one of my interests, um, cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease, metabolic disease, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And there's obviously some overlap. There is definitely overlap. And especially as somebody who has a clinic where I see medical problems of mm-hmm. athletes, I have a fair amount of patients who like for example, say they're a middle-aged triathlete and they have hypertension and hyperlipidemia. Mm-hmm. And they will come to me saying, I, I feel fatigued or something's going on with my workout. And I've had a couple of times where I look at their blood pressure medication and they have just been put on something new by their primary. And maybe it's something where it, it blunts their heart rate response to exercise. And so we have to talk about switching their blood pressure medication regimen so that they don't have that response and they can still keep exercising to their fullest benefit. So there's definitely chronic disease within what I do. There's all, we also see patients with arthritis and even though it's called sports medicine, a fair amount of my population is definitely not super athletic, but they have musculoskeletal complaints and some of them are cause chronic pain such as arthritis or chronic tendinosis. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about that, about um, the, the sports medicine moniker, um, because a lot of people can have injuries that they're not athletes. They weren't playing a sport, but it's essentially the same injury or close to it as an athlete would have. Um, it's kind of interesting that it is called sports medicine in that way and not musculoskeletal medicine or something like that. Yeah, it is a bit of a misnomer at times. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, you you seem to attract a lot of athletes to your practice. Yeah, the majority of the people I see here are athletes. And I do not do any basic family medicine anymore. My practice is 100% sports medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, you could also or one could 
also set up their practice where they're doing both. Um, you absolutely yeah. can do that. And I have many colleagues who have exact, who have similar credentials to me and they are doing family and sports medicine. And some of them see 50, 50, some of them see 70% family, 30% sports. It kind of depends on whatever their setup is. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, so uh, it's actually kind of serendipitous, uh, that you did, um, 10 years of family medicine before your sports med fellowship, because that's kind of how I structured, uh, um, the, the interview here. Um, so I kind of wanted to talk about family medicine first and then talk about your sports med fellowship. So, um, let's get into that a little bit. What, what do you wish you knew prior to entering this field of sports medicine or applying for fellowship in general? You know, um, there's parts of me that think, gosh, I should have done a fellowship earlier, Mm -hmm. but I actually think it worked out really well the way that it happened. Um, when I first came out of residency, musculoskeletal ultrasound was not really used nearly as widely as it is today. And, one of the reasons that I wanted to go back and do a fellowship was because I really wanted to use ultrasound in my practice. And I should say that I'm very ultrasound heavy, but a lot of people who do a sports medicine fellowship do not necessarily use that much ultrasound. Mm -hmm. But, um, so at the time when I went back, I was able to go to the university of Iowa, which is really strong in their musculoskeletal ultrasound teaching. So the timing was perfect for me to go back after that many years. The Most people do fellowship right after their residency, and that's what my co-fellow had done at Iowa. And I think that's a great option, too. Then you're kind of done, and you can start your practice, too, yeah. and not have to go back. Yeah. Um, so was that something that you specifically sought out, um, a program that was strong in, in that area? Yeah, I interviewed at like 12 or 13 programs and I ranked seven. The this fellow some fellowships after family medicine do have a match and some do not. The sports medicine fellowship is a traditional match. Mm-hmm. So, but all of the programs that I ranked were very strong in musculoskeletal ultrasound. Cool. Um so if you had never done a fellowship what do you think your career would be like? Would you have still kind of gravitated more towards just attracting athletes and, and musculoskeletal um, injuries, or would it have gone a different way? I think I would have stayed in the path that I was on, and I was seeing a fair amount of musculoskeletal medicine. I was helping direct the medical portions of marathons, and I was a team physician. So that, But I have a lot more knowledge after doing the fellowship. It I wanted to do it to have the certification and to have the musculoskeletal ultrasound knowledge, but I learned so much more about just general sports medicine. Um, So I don't know that my career itself would have been different. I don't think I could have gotten the amount of ultrasound training simply by going to CME and other courses. Mm -hmm. The year I had as a fellow was absolutely amazing for that teaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I bet. I remember I had a, a previous guest on the show saying, um, that, you know, we're all adult learners here in, in medicine. And even if you don't get something in residency that you want for your practice, that you can totally end up getting that training or knowledge or whatever it is. Um, but I think what you're saying right now is ringing true to me that it probably wouldn't have been the same. It probably wouldn't have been as rigorous just doing CMEs along the way or even seeking out some other course in it rather than doing a fellowship in terms of how much, um, what the, what the yield is or what the outcome is going to be for your, your knowledge and practice. Yeah. I wouldn't say somebody can't do it. I have some friends who have not done sports fellowships, but have done some ultrasound learning on their own. I think it just takes them a lot longer and it's a lot more self-learning and I was able to get what I did in one year and it's taken them five or six years to do it. Mm -hmm. But I do think you can definitely keep learning, and we should be adult learners and always learning new techniques. I've had several family physicians and uh, internal medicine physicians who have come to me while they're out in their careers and say, you know what, I never really learned a good joint injection while I was in residency, and can I come to your office and you teach me? And so you should always ask your colleagues and 
learn in any way that you can. We should be lifelong learners. If not, your practice is going to get really stale. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, and so in fellowship, you learn a lot of, you talked about specifically learning musculoskeletal ultrasound. Are you that much more advanced after fellowship than before fellowship in terms of other aspects of sports medicine, the physical exam and um, that sort of stuff? Yeah, the the teaching was fabulous where I was at. And so my knowledge base was a lot better. I, th I think the biggest part that grew was learning how to all these different forms of treatment and the different ways in which I can treat things that I had not realized beforehand. And I had been somebody who maybe would refer somebody to an orthopedic surgeon sooner at that point. And now I have a lot more tools in my toolkit to say, Hey, let's try this for conservative treatment. Let's try a little PRP or let's try something a little bit different. And maybe, maybe they do end up having to have surgery and maybe they don't, maybe there's an easier way and they can still be very active. Mm hmm. That's cool. So what, yeah, what you mentioned PRP, which is platelet rich plasma. Is that right? Yes. And that's an injection into a joint. It can be a yeah. joint or a tendon or it depends. It can, you know, you can put it a lot of different places. And the idea is that platelets have a lot of growth factors, which help to stimulate healing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one form of treatment. What are some other forms of treatment that maybe um, you feel more comfortable with after um, being fellowship trained than some of your colleagues who are, you know, equally brilliant at the sports med part, but weren't fellowship trained? Um, I, th I think I got a lot more experience with injections, especially ultrasound guided injections. So that is probably the biggest area where the fellowship training helped me. I feel very comfortable with injections. Um, I feel more comfortable with, I feel more comfortable with looking at a lot of different treatment options. For instance, let's take uh, tendinosis, chronic tendinosis, where it's past the acute stage of tendon injury and there are a lot more ways to treat this rather than you know certainly we want to try some physical therapy but if that doesn't work you there's certain injections you can do for certain tendons you can do steroids for certain tendons you would not want to do that some you might try some prp um, you might try something like a nitroglycerin patch, patch to get blood flow to the area, mm. which is something I would never even considered before I went to my fellowship and learned about that. And that's not something you'd commonly do our first line, right? but you might want though. to consider that. Or uh, percutaneous tenotomy is another way of treatment that can be helpful for tendons. And I would have never known how to do that without a fellowship. And that's basically going with ultrasound, looking at the tendon and going with a needle and you could say roughing up the tendon with mm -hmm. that, with that needle. And that also promotes healing it because then it's by it sends, damaging like, it, by you're, damaging you're it, it sends, healing. yep. You send signals to your body that that area is injured and then it works to get growth factors into the area. Interesting. Is that similar? It sounds similar to what I know about prolotherapy, but I don't know much about that. Prolotherapy is a little bit different. It's a dextrose, which is, it's a sugar, but not what we would think of as table sugar. Mm -hmm. And it is a sclerosine agent. So it, certainly it goes in by damaging and um, it's a little bit different way to rough up the tendon or ligament or whatever mm -hmm. you're working with. You're, you're putting sugar in, in the area mm -hmm. that causes damage, as we know sugar right. is apt to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then thus a healing, um, a healing. cascade is, is yeah. promoted. Right. And so, so for instance, Prolo we use in, um, you can use it in Osgood-Schlatter's disease in adolescence, um, and which will promote healing in that area very nicely. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I'm a, I want to get into a kind of a side topic here, which is a listener submitted question uh, about um, your sports med fellowship or just your sports med training in general, which is how much behavioral health slash psych training is there in sports med training? You know, I can't speak for all fellowships with this. There was a little bit of training in that. Um, 
And we definitely saw behavioral health and mental health issues in athletes and dealt with them in the training room. And, and oftentimes we would have them come to the clinic because the training room, there can be a lot of people there. And sometimes these are sensitive issues that you don't want to discuss in front of other athletes. Yeah. And so we would see them more in the clinic or sometimes I would have them come to my family medicine clinic because you do one day of family medicine clinic while you're in the fellowship. Mm -hmm. So we definitely saw it. We definitely talked about it. I don't know. It's not a high percentage of what my training was, but it was definitely there. We um, also had training in uh, relative energy deficiency in sport, which which has mental health components to it. Mm -hmm. We talked about mental health components to eating disorders, to anybody who has any sort of chronic injury that is keeping them out. There's going to be a huge mental health component to that. There's a mental health component to concussions and not being able, anything where you are not able to actively do your sport. If you take an athlete out for even a few days, that can be hard on their mental health. Definitely. Definitely. And that's kind of how you started this conversation is just how uh, interpersonal this field is. Um, you know, you're talking to people about their goals in life or their goals for the end of the month or trying to get them on the field later that day. Um, and you know, you're touching their body. It's very personal and, and you really get to know your patients in that way. And thus you can kind of, I imagine, employ a lot of motivational interviewing tactics and just kind of, um, other psycho behavioral assessment and, uh, treatment in that way without even maybe having that be the the emphasis of what you're doing that happens quite a bit yeah i i know um one of our professors at rocky vista university who talked about the sports med physician's role as being protecting the athlete from themselves protecting the athlete from coaches and parents and that sort of thing um how much does that play into uh, your life. You know, it's, it, there's not a ton of times where you have to do that, but you always have to be aware Mm -hmm. that it happens. And I remember back to a a time about five, 10 years ago when I was in a training room of a high school training room. And there was a football player who in there who was, he was on varsity, but he was on the low end of varsity and did not get a lot of playing time. And he was constantly in the training room every single week for a new injury, and they did, none of them seemed very big. And so after about the fourth injury, I just sat him down and said, hey, what's going on? Do you want to play? And he started crying, and he said, no, I don't want to play. I hate football. My dad is making me play football. Mm. And so we, you know, you have to think, like, what is here beneath the surface um, there's also times when coaches may be thinking about how do I win this game and they're thinking less about what is the long-term health of this athlete. And fortunately, I'm very blessed to work with some great coaches who I don't have to deal with that problem too much. Yeah. Certainly, there's a lot of parental pressure. I have many parents who come into my office with their kids who are 11, 12 and, and tell me we're counting on a scholarship to college. Because we're putting all of our money into their sports programs. That's definitely not the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's a lot of pressure on the kid and maybe even spills over onto the people around them that see them, such as yourself. Um, I want to talk about uh, manual therapy. You talked about different treatments, um, kind of more... um, other therapeutics, but, um, we, I guess I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, physical touch, um, manual therapy, whether it be a physical therapist, um, or osteopathic physician learned some manual therapy techniques. Um, you're an MD that didn't come with your, um, training. Is that something that goes on in, uh, sports med fellowship or anywhere along the line, uh, in sports med training? I bet depending upon the fellowship you go to, there might be some. There was really not any of that in my fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, and my training is as an MD. The residency program that I am at is a primarily an 
I wouldn't say a DO residency program, but we were at first sponsored by a DO school and now we're sponsored by a hospital. So we tend to attract a lot of DOs, especially because we have an OMM track yeah. to our program. And so there, there's a huge amount of room for overlap there. And one of the things that we're trying to do within the residency right now is to have some interplay between the sports medicine track and the OMM track so that people who have an interest in both of those things can really figure out how, how to use it together. We um, do occasionally do OMM in the uh, training room at the high school, depending upon the situation. So there's, I think, a lot of room to use OMM in sports medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, that's cool. Is there, um, you said that sometimes there can be manual therapy incorporated into some different, uh, training programs. Is that right? There probably are. I could not tell you which ones they are, but I would not be surprised to learn of that because certainly 10 years ago, I don't think the topic was even on the table and now it's discussed a lot more. There's a lot more acceptance of DOs and most, a lot of the MDs and DOs I know don't they're not worried about the difference as much as they are worried about helping patients. Totally. And so I, I would be surprised if there wasn't room for it in a lot of fellowships now. Yeah. Cool. Um, so you mentioned some types of careers that are available for uh, fellowship trained sports med physicians. Um, can we kind of just uh, get a little bit of a brainstorm list going of like, what would, what would you do after, do a, fellowship? after a fellowship? Yeah. Yeah. You definitely can do a lot of things. After a sports medicine fellowship, some people say, hey, this is great. I'm going to take what I learned and go back to doing family medicine all day or internal medicine or peds or whatever it is that Mm -hmm. they do. So some people go that route. Some people will work in an orthopedic clinic doing non-operative orthopedics. Those And I did that for a short time. And those people tend to see a lot less medical problems in athletes and more musculoskeletal things. So if that's their niche, then that might be what they would like to do. Uh, You can... um, I have done both of those things in the past. um, And I ended up opening up my own clinic so that I could kind of change my practice to the way that I wanted. So I get to do some teaching at the residency program. And then I own my own clinic... Uh, where I do 100% sports medicine, both musculoskeletal and medical problems of athletes. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you brought up your own clinic because I want to talk about your your practice right now. Um, so another listener question is asking about the percentage of your practice that is sports versus, I guess, the percentage that is other things. And you've kind of talked about this already, which is that it's always going to be a little bit of a combination, even in one visit, one patient visit. Um, you can be doing a lot of different things for somebody. Um, but do you have a, do you, is there a way you think about how your practice breaks down? Oh, it's 50% sports and 25% other injuries and that sort of thing. I guess it depends on your definition of sports medicine and how broad it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the I would guess that probably about... of my patients are what you'd consider like true hardcore athletes Mm -hmm. and 40% are not. Um, I definitely have people who come in and they just have arthritis or, and I have, uh, I would guess 10 to 15% of my practice is probably osteoporosis. And a lot of that is sent from orthopedic surgeons who are in town and want some medical care for osteoporosis for patients they've seen at surgery with soft bone or that sort of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what um, you talked a lot about being strong in and very interested in ultrasound. Um, so some of the things that you do with ultrasound is diagnostic and uh, also therapeutic, meaning like you'll use ultrasound to um, what we just saw actually about an hour ago was use it to um, guide a needle for either injection or drainage. What else do you use ultrasound for? So it's primarily for those two things. It's Mm -hmm. either going to be diagnosing something or some sort of injection or procedure. Um, The, we use it for diagnosing things in almost every joint. It does not as much in the spine area, but we can look for ultrasound or we can ultrasound for injuries in shoulders, elbows, hands, wrists, hip, knees, ankles. It is, 
about a tenth of the cost of an MRI. Mm -hmm. And depending upon what structure you're looking at, you can get just as much useful information. For example, rotator cuff, I can look at that very easily with ultrasound. And not only can I look at it, but as you saw me do just this morning, we can look at it while the rotator cuff is moving and watch to see if there is impingement or pressure on that rotator cuff as it moves through its normal space. Um, on an MRI, somebody's just laying still. They, you can't actually look at it as it's in motion. So some people would argue that maybe this is even better for looking at a rotator cuff. Hmm. However, if I'm going to look at a meniscus in a knee, ultrasound is probably not as good as an MRI. So it depends on the structure that you're doing. So use it for diagnosis. Also use it for procedures. If I want to, uh, for instance, inject a hip joint, that's something that you would not want to do without some form of guidance. And you can do it with fluoroscopy or x-ray guidance um, or ultrasound guidance. But I, and I'm probably biased, but I tend to think ultrasound guidance is nicer because you don't get radiation and it can be done very simply in my office here without having to go to a hospital or other big center. Yeah, no, that is a, a definite... Uh advantage of ultrasound you mentioned the cost is a lot cheaper um what else was i gonna say about ultrasound oh i had another thought but i lost it um but it is really nice i mean you you were ultrasounding my shoulder this morning and it was nice for me to be able to see it uh in real time if you want you can't do that with uh, a lot of other imaging techniques yeah, you can get yeah. answers right then and there. And the other thing that's really nice is if I see something and I think, huh, is this just a little bit different or is this perhaps a genetic thing that is not a big deal? I can look at your other shoulder under ultrasound real quick and say, hey, you know what? This is kind of just the way this person's shaped because we like to think it's all very similar, but people have a lot of uh, differences in their structure. Yeah, yeah, the, the variation in anatomy is... More than I would have expected uh, before medical school, just even looking at cadavers and, uh, you know, comparing them to textbooks and that sort of thing. Yeah, if, if I've learned anything after doing this many years of ultrasound, it's that uh, anatomy is definitely not always like netters. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, so in terms of, we kind of talked about a little bit of the overlap that family medicine can have with sports medicine. Um, in that they can diagnose and treat injuries and they can use ultrasound. Is there other um, specialties that kind of compete with what you're doing? Maybe orthopedics, maybe rehab. Uh, I'm not sure. Is there You know, it's overlap? like a lot of areas in medicine where there's overlap in what you do. I mean, this is certainly not unique to the field of sports medicine. Um there's so certainly there's some overlap. I do joint injections, an orthopedic surgeon might do joint injections. Mm -hmm. If I'm treating a runner for their hypertension, family medicine can do that too. I mean, there's, you know, but it, this is what happens in a lot of fields. I look at osteoporosis treatment, for example. I treat osteoporosis and have an osteoporosis clinic here, but so do rheumatologists, so do endocrinologists, so does family medicine and internal medicine. So there's right. there's always going to be overlap. Yeah, very cool. Um, so on that note, what are some other chronic disease things that come up for you or that you specifically attract or that maybe you see in your athletes, some, uh, whether it be you know lipid disorders or diabetes or GI disorders or infectious disease? Yeah, so there's some of all of this that mm -hmm. can come up. You know, commonly I see hypertension, I see hyperlipidemia, especially as athletes um, get a little bit older. We see asthma. Um, certainly, mental health is with all age groups. I'll see mental health issues in mm -hmm. athletes. I see iron deficiency, anemia. Um, I see athletes who have things like MS or Parkinson's and they want to stay really active and maybe they've hiked 14ers in the past and they want to do some hiking, but they are dealing with that part of their chronic disease as well. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you had to give up anything in your career to do what you're doing now, like that you couldn't practice a certain thing or in a certain way to set up the career that you eventually did take and want? 
I'm not sure I necessarily gave up anything. I, I see far less things like sinus infections, although I, although I do have athletes who come in and they have a sinus infection or right. whatever. Um, so I see less of that, but um, I don't know. If, if I gave it up, apparently I don't miss it. Okay. Well, that's good. Um, and so you have a, a pretty small practice here um, that you just started right before COVID hit. Uh, yeah. That, that's what you were telling me the other day. Um, so you um, have a basically a three-room small little practice with a um, two two beds and an ultrasound machine, essentially. Um, right. So low overhead, it seems like a pretty good business model that you have. Is there anything else to other considerations that you put in uh, when you were kind of envisioning and setting up this yeah. practice? My idea was to do something as low overhead as possible because I've worked in a lot of clinics where you have to crank through 20, 25 patients in a day. And I'm older now. I have my kids college paid for. Like I, I can step back a little bit and I wanted to spend more time with patients and really get to know these amazing people who trust us with all of their decisions. Mm -hmm. And so I have went with a very low overhead and, um, so I do, I have an ultrasound machine. I have an EKG machine. I have some things for lung volume and that sort of thing. So I have a few things that we have, but not a lot. And, I really enjoy it this way. My patients who, some patients are come in and say, oh, this isn't the big fancy, uh, big clinic in town that treats the football, NFL, and you know, all that. Right, they, it doesn't have a gym over here. Right, it doesn't have a like... gym. And so there are a few patients who don't like that and that's okay. Yeah. But the majority of my patients have followed me for five years now, or, you know, a lot of them have been with me for a while and they are absolutely ecstatic about this, the practice model. They feel like they get to spend more time with me and, um, we can deal with more of their needs on any given day. Yeah. So I, I really like it for me personally. I don't think it'd be the practice model for everybody, but at this point in my career, I really like stepping back a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's cozy. It's authentic. I, I like being here, so I can mm -hmm. imagine that other patients would as well. Um, so I wanted to talk about insurance and how that works with the field of sports medicine and your personal uh, experience with insurance. <laughs> Is insurance usually covering the types of injuries and issues that you see? Or is it sometimes that you have to fight with insurance or people paying out of pocket? How does that work for uh, most of your patients? Well, I will tell you, my previous assistant told me I had an insurance voice that I only <laughs> used with the insurance companies. And I suspect it's similar to the voice I use when my children are in a lot of trouble. Right. But um, <laughs> so I definitely get frustrated with insurance companies. There are a lot of hoops to jump to jump through for imaging. Um, sometimes people have a certain amount of PT they can have in a year. There's some things you have to work with. Uh, for instance, for insurance, let's say that I think somebody has an ACL tear. Most insurance companies will make you get an x-ray before you can get an MRI. I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense to me. If this is a soft tissue injury, why am I wasting this person's time and money mm -hmm. on an, an insurance money on an x-ray when we sh this is the proper test to order? So you're definitely forced to order tests that you don't think are the right test to be ordering. Um, most insurance companies will not pay for MRIs um, for certain things unless people have had a four-week or six-week period of physical therapy, and sometimes we will do that, and then they will say, well, there it wasn't documented that their four weeks of physical therapy was in the past three months, but I will look at my note, and I'm thinking, well, they came in to see me. They did four weeks of physical therapy, and then they came in to see me again, and that's all been in the past month and a half, so we will have to do an appeal for mm -hmm. that, even though it's clearly documented. So, so yes, I get really frustrated with insurance companies. Yeah, that sounds horrible, <laughs> and not and probably uh, a part of the job that nobody got into this line of work for. No, I'm sure. Yeah, um, you kind of mentioned different models of practice, or or mm -hmm. just kind of setups for the practice, um, and you mentioned kind of your own personal. Um, interest in stepping back and maybe taking a little less time, uh, sorry, a little more time with patients, a little less 
patient load. Um, I imagine that comes with a little bit of a decreasing your income versus if you were to go to one of the big box uh, practices. Is, is that how that works? Yeah. And part, so I work part-time at this clinic cause I also teach at the residency. So right. it's not totally a fair comparison, mm-hmm. but when I calculated out how I wanted to do this, I probably make about 20% less than somebody who was working at a big box clinic and just cranking through patients all the time. Mm-hmm. And you know, that might be the wrong choice for certain people. I felt like the I would be happy to make 20% less and not have to deal with doing charts every night, late at night, and some of the other Mm -hmm. things that go along with that. But if I still had colleges to pay for and, you know, some of the other things, I might not have a choice. Yeah, definitely. Or if you were paying off your own student student loans loans. is a big thing. Yeah. Um, Or just, you know, it's kind of at your... um, lot in life now you're saying well how much is it worth to be my own boss versus having a corporate overlord right i still have to deal with insurance companies but uh but i don't deal with a certain corporation that you work with saying only refer to my physical therapists or only refer for this reason i don't have to deal with any of that anymore right um, you made mention earlier of being medical director of races and, and um, other athletic events. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit more about that, your experience, and what other kind of opportunities there are. Yeah, over the years, I have um, volunteered for lots of different medical events, um, marathons, ultra marathons, uh, Ironman triathlons, taekwondo tournaments, you know, the, the sky is the limit there. A lot of these places need medical volunteers. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it's a really fun thing. I would encourage physicians to do it. I would encourage medical students and residents to get out there and do it. I started doing it when I was a medical student and the experience was great. I mean, the first IV that I put in was in a marathon tent. Oh, cool. So it's, it's a nice way to get procedures and learn some things outside of your real world. Yeah, yeah. I remember I did um, as an EMT. We staffed one event. I forget. I think it was the, a marathon. It might have been a half. Um, it was super fun. It's always a fun atmosphere, and uh, the people who are asking for your help are mm-hmm. always grateful. Right. Um, so yeah, that that sounds super fun. You did the Twin Cities Medtronic. Uh, I have volunteered marathon. for that one, the Stillwater Marathon. I, I don't know how many vol- marathons I've volunteered to work for. Yeah, a lot of them. Cool. Yeah. Well, I ran the Twin Cities, so that's. Oh, you yeah, did. So okay. I, I appreciate. I've run the Twin the Cities too. There. It's yeah. a fun marathon. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um. All right. So you you also talked about having a mix of having your own private practice and teaching. Mm-hmm. Um. What's your teaching life like? So I am the director of sports and wilderness medicine for the residency, and I run three tracks. I run the sports medicine track, the wilderness track, and also the musculoskeletal ultrasound track that residents can be on. And our residents are really active. We have 23 residents, and 16 of them are on the wilderness medicine track. Yeah. So, And we have 11 on the sports track, and I I would have to look at ultrasound. I want to say there's 11 on that, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So what I do, I do curriculum development. I had to develop the, the teaching for all three of those tracks. Um, the really fun part is I get to go do stuff with the wilderness activities, including yeah. teaching a teaching a rotation in Chamonix where there's some great trails. Yeah, that's in France. You were t- yeah. telling me about it the other day, but it's it sounds it's in the deep in the Alps. Yeah, it's deep in the Alps, and it's absolutely the most gorgeous place that I have run trails, or if you like to hike or run. Wow. Yeah. So we um, we also do a lot of scholarly activities. So we do QI projects um, in curriculum development. And um, one of the things that we're doing right now that I'm really proud of and happy with how it's going is a program for the female high school athletes at the school that we are team physicians for. And it is a educational sessions designed to help with body positivity and good nutrition. And the overall goal is to help these girls realize that they don't need to be society's image of a perfect female in an effort to um, 
hopefully make sure that they will not have eating disorders or even even just disordered eating when they go to college and further in life and to recognize that athletes come in all different size and shapes so the i'll tell you the instagram site for this yeah, is please. it's Give it a plug. at spring underscore forward underscore girls and we are also working on a book that will have an instruction manual so that other high schools can do the same program. We used it last year for the cross country team and we had a hundred percent positive response to this. These girls want to do it again. They're super excited. And our plan was to do it for several other teams, but we are in um, Colorado and like many other States, COVID really messed up our sports seasons last year. And so it was kind of last minute when we knew when other seasons were happening. And so we were not able to do that program. But now this year we will be doing it for as many female athletic teams as that school as we can. And we've had several neighboring high schools who want to start the program as well. That's so cool. What's the Instagram again? It is at spring underscore forward underscore girls. Cool. Spring Forward Girls. And that's the name of the book as well? Yeah. It, the book will be called Spring Forward for Girls. And spring stands for strength and positivity rooted in nutrition for girls. That's awesome. Super cool. And so that's part of the the um, residency um, teaching program. Is that what Yeah. The residents yeah. come down and help with the small group format and facilitate discussion with the girls about body positivity and teach nutrition. So the residents are involved with that. Awesome. Do you have an overarching philosophy that kind of guides your, your teaching or your professing um, and helping young learners learn? So I am actually, I hear a lot of the older generation beating down on the younger generation saying they're lazy they don't want to work and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing and i think that's totally wrong with at least with these groups of people who come in through our residence they are very engaged they want to learn and they learn very differently than my generation Mm -hmm. has they um have all kinds of apps on their cell phones and things that i don't even know exist Mm -hmm. and I kind of view my role as somewhat of a teacher and somewhat of a guidance counselor. Like we, it's, it's really hard going through residency is hard. Your intern year is really long. It's easy to get depressed, especially in the winter months. And so we need to, we need to encourage them and teach them at the same time. But so my goal is to help them learn in the best way that they can learn, whether it's through technology or through some other form and also to help them to individualize the program to meet their needs. We have some people who want to be rural docs and do a whole bunch of OB, and we have other people who want to do sports medicine fellowships. So we need to let them get their best experience to help them in the future. Yeah, it's interesting. I like thinking of it as being a guidance counselor. That's (laughs) just an interesting way to think of it because, like we talked about, a lot of people are just so self-motivated and self good self-starters they're, they're going to learn what they want to learn and uh and they're, they're just going to find a way to incorporate it into their practice your job is to guide them and tell them how to best apply these things or to best learn these things and set themselves up for what they want to do in the future yeah and and even this you know most of the people who have, are here are self-starters because they wouldn't be if they they wouldn't have gotten this far if right. they weren't But even so, I mean, I had a a resident who came in and said, you know, he wants to do sports medicine, but he said, you know, I just feel like cardiology is my weakness. Like, what is the best way to learn more about that? Because certainly there's cardiovascular risk factors in athletics and and Mm -hmm. things like that. And, you know, so a lot of that, it is just guiding them to the right resources and the way that they learn. Definitely. Um, I kind of want to go back to a little bit of a topic we just talked about, which is everyone's favorite topic, insurance. Oh, no. Um, no, I, actually, I'm not specifically asking about that. But my, my question, which I've been asking people lately, um, asking guests on the podcast, which is if you had a magic wand, how would you change healthcare in this country? And I understand that it's a leading question, especially given what we talked about earlier in terms of the frustrations with insurance. So I'm not even asking you to address that specifically unless that is part of your answer. But here's your magic wand. How do you improve or change healthcare in this country? 
Yeah, it's not a level playing field for the patients. I see patients with certain kinds of insurance who can't get medications that they need, and Mm -hmm. other people have insurance where they can do a lot more with it. And unfortunately, I see us becoming a very much a system where the people who have enough money can do direct pay. And, and honestly, I take, I do some concierge services in my, or direct pay in my office for certain procedures that insurance doesn't pay for. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the answer. I don't, I tend to be very moderate politically. I don't know what the answer for this is, but mm-hmm. I wish it was a more level playing field. I, I feel like the athletes who come in who have a lower socioeconomic status, I'm not able to use as many things to treat them well as I am the people who have disposable income. Yeah. And so that's probably my largest frustration. Definitely. Yeah. And that's not their fault. That's not your fault. It's just this other bigger thing that is dictating what you can and can't do for people, right. which is it sound, it's the worst. Right. Right. How would you tra- change training in sports medicine? Is there ways that we you think we could be doing it better? You know, I've often wonder if my sports medicine fellowship when I was there, I wished it was two years and not, you know, you, I took a decrease in pay and all that. So that stuff was not, I wouldn't want to do that. I wish I didn't have to do that, but, (laughs) um, there's so, was so much to learn and I, and I've had to keep learning since I was out, but I really would have loved to have a year of, or two years of it and even learn more than I did. I, I wonder if a year is just not long enough. Mm-hmm. Is it standard? It's to a be standard w- to do a year, and I don't year. think that's changing anytime soon. It's, um, and I, yeah, I don't know that it would. I don't know that there's money for it, that sort of thing. Right. But um, I felt like I, I loved my fellowship year, and I felt like I could have kept learning so much more. Awesome. Well, You've been really, really enlightening on the on the podcast um, so far to uh, just talk about your life and your work and your philosophies on medicine. Um, is there any other things that you want to address or talk about or advice to give to the the young ones listening? Yeah, my advice is don't give up. There's always another way, and there's so many times when you will feel beat down as a medical student, as a resident, even as an attending. There's days when I just think, can I cure anything today? Um, Because patients just aren't getting better, but don't give up because you'll have other days where you learn a whole bunch or you'll do a procedure and it'll go right and it'll, you know, and the patient will come back and say, I'm so much better. And And sometimes the opposite happens where you think, I don't even know if this is going to help this person, but we're going to give it a try because we don't have other options and it works really well. So keep going. I love it. I love it. I'm I'm looking over my shoulder right now because on your wall, there's a framed, I guess, a piece of artwork that says it's hard to beat a person who never gives up. So that's a a nice uh, succinct way to uh, end the podcast, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Sports med, popular topic. Maybe it's the uh, circles that I run in, so to speak. But uh, a lot of people interested in that type of medicine and exploring sports medicine as a fellowship. So thank you, Dr. Vidlock, for giving us a lot of information all around on uh, the possibilities of that career and what your life and work have been like. So I don't have a whole lot more to add. I'm just going to thank everybody for listening and keep tuning in. Uh, Usually try to get one of these a month, of course, These next few months are going to be pretty busy with applying to residency and hopefully getting some interviews and, um, you know, just running all around and living a busy life. So I appreciate all of you. Email me at theprimarycarepodcast at gmail.com and leave a review on whatever platform you listen. Thank you. See you next time. Just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? Pizzazz, pizzazz, pizzazz.
purpose was the universe and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves it was a fight for survival many died though friends were formed to fight mutual rivals man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives boom they were civilized went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne built empires and the stories well known history ticks along like a metronome and then i came to be walk talk and throw stuff all grown up i got a job now and showing up i'm sleep deprived i'm misaligned my appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time and then i met you lovely and smooth you quickly removed my modern man's blues i want to celebrate every breath that i take because i'm afraid i'm dreaming and i don't want to wait so baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe, but I left to pursue the search of love. But sometimes it hurt along the way. If there's anything I've learned, create a garden, plant flowers in the dirt. I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain, protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames. Play the game and wonder, am I the hunted or the hunter? was younger, I met God and I hugged her. She said, hey baby, instead of getting lost within, how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasins? Stop, begin, let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road, going inch by inch. Don't sprint, take it slow, protect your soul. Travel long and far, but make sure to come home. Cause the love that's here is what keeps you going gives you the power and the freedom to grow let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress this life is crazy but it's the goddamn best when life gets complex don't think just do it first it was simpler when the uterus was so baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know the uterus was my universe the uterus was my universe All conversation and information exchange contained in this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment. And no doctor patient relationship is formed. Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold. Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know.